Hey listeners, we just want to give a content warning for physical and emotional child abuse for this episode. And welcome to JK It's Magic, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties read YA fantasy through a critical lens. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language, and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jesse, And I'm Kelly. And today we will be talking about The Wicked King by Holly Black, the second book in the Folk of Air series. The Wicked King picks up a few months after The Cruel Prince with Cardin on the throne, Jude having command over him, and a new threat on the horizon. <laughs> What'd you think of this book, Jesse? I love this book so much more than I thought it would. I would. It was super exciting. It was fast paced. And I was so happy to see more interaction between Jude and Cardin. And I really appreciated Holly Black's ability to make me care about Jude, a character I did not like in the first book. What about you? I feel confused. <laughs> and I don't know if that's because my depression and anxiety medication is starting to work. Or that's probably why. But also this book is just, I feel my feelings are just so confused in general. And in this book, there's just a lot to be confused about. But I did enjoy it. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm excited for book three. Ugh, I don't even want to talk about the long wait for book three. <laughs> Time to talk about all things world building in Through the Wardrobe. So we get a new part of fairy in this book in the undersea. And I thought that was really cool to see somewhere new, but also a whole world that takes place in the water. And it just made me wonder like how gravity works in the undersea. Because Jude's like floating above her bed. So what's the point of having a bed? Right. Maybe the fairies have more control over gravity. Wait for it. It's a waterbed. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and the puns begin. Nailed it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know how it works, but it was cool. That was really cool. I imagined it kind of like The Little Mermaid, I guess, with coral, because all of the walls and furniture is made of coral, and there's fish everywhere. Like, there's windows, and the fish just swim in and out of it. Yeah, but then, like, why do you even have windows? Like, what is the need for that? But I also imagined The Little Mermaid the whole time. <laughs> and how the like banquet hall doesn't have a roof. Oh. It's kind of like Hogwarts that way, right? Yeah. You can see the sky. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Yeah. It was cool. I just It made me chuckle that they eat sushi. <laughs> it's so obvious. And yet I didn't expect them to be like passing sh- sashimi around. I mean, how else would you cook in the water? Well, but then they said they also had like cloches of air or something. Yeah, maybe they can start fire within that little air bubble. Or I guess some places in the water have like steam coming out, like underwater. I don't know. I don't know how the ocean works. That's geology. <laughs> That'd be how geology works. Mm, well, I don't know how any of it works. Well, because there's like molten, you know, rock underneath right. the Earth's crust and it gets released and so steam comes out. So you just put some fish in there and then it would be cooked. And that's how you cook things. Listeners, we've the figured it. <laughs> Listeners, we've figured it out. <laughs> I keep coming back to descriptions of the palace question mark of Elfheim. Did they call it under the hill? That sounded familiar. 
because that's what the that always comes up in Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And so when I were he- hearing about this palace, I just imagined just like a large mound of dirt with a tree on top and like a combination of Hobbit Hole and Mines of Moria. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really have a really good like picture in my head of what a lot of Elfheim looks like. Are there bugs coming out of the walls? Are the walls made of dirt? I don't know. I think everyone who lives there must be vitamin D deficient. Although they do leave. Yeah, like they were having their classes outside, like under trees and stuff. (laughs) That's true. It's just so much earthier. This particular world is so much more connected to nature. Maybe they don't need vitamin D. They're fairies. They don't. (laughs) They can just magic it. (laughs) Magic the vitamin D. Cardin makes a new island, so I just wanted to put a literal slash literary world building pun right there. <laughs> <laughs> he does make a new island, and I don't know. Sometimes when I'm reading Cardin, I like read him as Resand, which I know we haven't talked about him that much, non spoiler rise. But I don't know. For some reason, those two like are very similar to me. I don't know why. Hmm. I wonder, Cardin's definitely, like, Resand is definitely just more hero than, well, like, anti-hero. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I think maybe because they, in my head, they look the same. Oh, yeah. They minus do. the tail. They're supposed to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but doesn't Resand? he could have a tail, maybe. Yeah, when he's, like, in his, like, monster form. Yeah. But Cardin always has a tail. <laughs> They're both kind of, like, have that devil-may-care, I-do-what-I-want sort of air yeah. about them. So yeah. I could see it. I have a hard time visualizing the geography of this particular magical world. Do you have a similar yes. experience? I have a hard time picturing like where things are, like when they're going places, but also what things look like. And I'm not 100% sure that's Holly Black's writing or it's just me and my reading. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I listened to bo- the audiobooks for both of these, for both right. Cruel Prince and Wicked King, so I didn't have a map. There is a map, but I don't really like flipping back and forth. That's really annoying to me. Like when footnotes are at the back of the book, when they're endnotes instead of footnotes, I don't enjoy that. <laughs> um, so there was a map, but I didn't, I took a picture of it and did not use it again. <laughs> we get an explanation behind the series name in this book. The Folk of the Air. The What's his face? Eldred Seneschal? What's his name? No idea. The human with the twigs in his hair who juggles. He's a weird guy. Yeah. He tells you that fairies can't keep the same form and they're inconsistent and flighty. Did you find this to be true? Did this like encapsulate how the fairies are to you? This little, this descriptor? No, but I can see why it might seem that way to a human with like a a much shorter lifespan because. No, but that dude's like hundreds of years old. I know. No, it doesn't seem like it to me. It doesn't seem like it to you. Not at all. It seems like they're very consistent in their obsession with power and their politicking and they're like trying to deceive one another all the time. Right. And best one another with all their different deals. Maybe it's part of, I don't remember what his name is, but he's coming from a different world where, well, I don't know. In the human world, people are obsessed with power as well. That's true. I guess maybe what he's actually pointing out, I, I think I'm remembering in the context of this it was Eldred made him essentially like swear loyalty right. to him. So maybe that means that 
this human who's witnessed the fairy realm for so long is realizing that like constancy in the in the sense of like loyalty and fealty mm-hmm. doesn't really exist the fairies are always trying to move between alliances or be right. have power over other people there's very little like bo- very few like bonds of affection right that's true and we even see that with the relationships um like the king has lots of different he has i guess a wife uh eldred did eldred he was the king i don't know yeah. if he did I, I he just had a bunch of consorts yeah but consorts are like official status mm-hmm. versus it seemed like there were also just flings right who weren't official consorts which i think carden's mother was one of those yeah because i think they mentioned how carden's mother was not a consort of the king mm-hmm. yeah i guess i see what he's saying in a sense but i don't i'm not sure it's much different than how humans operate maybe it's easier for us in the sense that we can lie to each other and we see that a lot with jude that's like her superpower kind of is that she can lie and that makes it easier whereas the fairies are like telling these truths and trying to work around them wands out let's discuss all things magic i wasn't sure if this should go in wands out or through the wardrobe because it's a bit of both but Cardin has a lot of power over his people because he's the king Not only do his actions affect his people, like with any ruler, but his drinking makes the fae drunk, his moods affect the weather, and his energy literally feeds into the energy of his people. I wonder if Jude becoming queen will affect fairy in any way. I know she's been banished, but is Jude linked to the land and the people as well now? What do you think? I'm going to guess no, because she's a human and not fairy. And so I think that Cardin's magic actually stems from him being a fairy that's my guess though what do you think i don't know part of me thinks that making her the queen means something if eldred especially didn't have a queen but just consorts i wonder if making someone i guess kind of almost your equal form some kind of bond with the land and the people as well and maybe that's why it's not the norm i don't know it's a good question we'll have to wait till 2020 We see magic combining with physical imprisonment in this novel. We see Balekin and others locked in the Tower of Forgetting, which is like a physical prison. And then also Jude is imprisoned in the undersea and she's taken via deception and then captured and held there with force. So I don't know, I guess it just, I keep coming back in all these different novels to how magic and consent do and don't match up. Well, I guess now that I'm saying that, we had another sort of imprisonment slash magic connection in book one when Jude makes Cardin swear his oath to her, like, because she can command him now. Yeah, she has a year and a day. In this book, we kind of see the roles reverse in that she becomes the queen, and it seems like Cardin has some kind of power over her in some way because she's banished, and I'm guessing she can't come back. Does she have no choice? I think she probably could come back, but she might get killed. Oh, even as queen, you think? Yeah, he said you're banished under pain of death. Oh. See, this is the problem when I read the books too far ahead. <laughs> you finish it early. It was so good. I wanted to know what was going to happen so bad. 
now you know and I feel like we just have more conflicting emotions than we did when we began I have more questions than ever now and it was not helpful I should have waited till all the books were out to start reading <laughs> that's yeah that happens with the series wands away now we're going to talk about conflict villains and good versus evil in our segment get me Kylo Ren there are so many villains. I think there are only villains. There are only villains. There are no heroes in this story. Maybe we have anti-heroes. Maybe we could see Jude as an anti-hero. Maybe, but that also makes her like a kind of villain, yeah, right? Yeah. I guess the bomb and what's that other person's The name? Roach? Yeah. They're kind of heroic. They don't seem to be villains. Um, but we have Ghost, who betrays the Court of Shadows. Balkin, who's attempting to force Jude to kill Cardin. Orla, tr- she's trying to trick Cardin into marrying her daughter. Cardin banishes Jude to the human world. Maddox takes half the army and leaves. And Taryn tricks Cardin and- by turning into Jude. like, And also Jude. It was just all the villains. <laughs> Can we talk about the Terran arc? Did this surprise you? No. I, it might be like one of the few things that didn't surprise me in the book. I think Taryn, while she doesn't admit it in the same way as Jude, wants to be part of the face so badly that learning to deceive people in a way that is believable without actually lying. Well, I, I guess that's what she did the entirety of book one to Jude. Yeah. Did it surprise you? It kind of did just because I guess I was, I would not work well in this world because it's just exhausting. Like how all the strategy, it's going on all the time and these people are inexhaustible. Yeah. But we see that really taking a toll on Jude. Right. But she's not going to, her lifespan is so much shorter than theirs. It makes sense that. And she's probably like giving herself heart disease. Oh my God. Yeah. That and poisoning herself and like not sleeping poisoning came back in the end so at least now it makes sense but, it does it does make sense yeah i guess i wasn't really surprised by taryn it was weird that she was like working so closely with maddox but i guess it also felt like she was trying to get Jude to come back into the fold of the family so i didn't trust her this whole book i knew something was up i guess i didn't trust her but i also just kind of thought she was kind of chicken shit yeah so i i guess it kind of surprised me that way I didn't think she was smart enough to realize the connections between Jude and Cardin, like that something was going on between them enough to try and do something like this big. The ghost's betrayal didn't seem very fleshed out to me. Did you have a similar reaction? When Nikasia, she said someone's already betraying you. I assumed that was Taryn. Me too. Which it was. Yeah, it was, but I don't think she knew that's who it was. So, I don't know. Yeah, it didn't feel fleshed out, and I didn't think that the ghost had enough of an allegiance to... Orla? Balkin? No, the... Dane? Dane, that's it. I didn't think that the ghost had enough of an allegiance to someone who's dead. Like, why does it matter now? It doesn't seem like those sorts of loyalties exist in fairy. No. I, I was just a little bit confused by this and about his motives and reasoning. And I get that he's not, you know, that big of a deal. But it just seemed like this was an integral plot point that 
I mean, I get why it happened for narrative expediency. I just mm-hmm. think it could have been, I don't know, maybe we, but maybe we would have just distracted from the main narrative if we'd have gotten more background. So I'm guessing be, since the ghost wasn't killed in this book, it'll come back in book three and maybe we'll get more reasoning for it then. Like I said, I don't want to wait for that, <laughs> but I have no choice. In The Wicked King, Jude confronts her feelings about power more explicitly and more often in her exposition. I don't know why this stood out to me in particular, but it was just there were a. It seems like Jude is understanding herself better in this novel. When it makes sense, she's kind of dealing with what it means to be technically, she's the person in power, she's the person in charge. So it makes sense that she would be struggling with that a little bit and how to use that power and the responsibilities that she has because of that. And I guess I, I kind of realized from the beginning, well, from the end of the last book, from the end of Cruel Prince, when she finally gets the power, mm-hmm. that the entirety of the second book was going to be about keeping that power. Right. And the little um, story anecdote at the beginning also sets the stage for the Wicked King being all about games of strategy and how to maintain the high ground when you have it. And then she gives it up. She gives up her power. Because she loves Carmen, I think. Probably. Do we think? don't know. <laughs> well, that segues into our next point. <laughs> what, what, what am I supposed to do with Carden at the end? I don't know. I have a lot of feelings about Carden. And I know I'm not one to talk about my feelings much, but I'm going to talk about them for a second here. Because I feel really conflicted. Part of me thinks he must honestly like Jude. And even if he doesn't love her yet, part of me wants to believe that he sent Jude to the mortal world to keep her out of harm's way. And because Taryn is around and he doesn't want to be tricked by her again. Right. Jude being a possible weakness, right? Because Taryn could impersonate her. Right. It's already happened once. Who's to say it won't happen again? That's a good point. A different part of me thinks Cardin seduced Jude like he did Nikasia to get Jude's secrets and to get her to relinquish control over him. Also, what's with making Nikasia ambassador of the undersea? Does Cardin actually want to be with Nikasia? I don't know what to believe anymore, and I don't want to wait till 2020 to find out what happens. I almost wish I didn't start this series yet so that I can know what happens right now. I'm very conflicted. It's a lot of feelings. It's so many feelings. You just got to take those feelings and crush them in your mind vice until 2020. Yeah. (laughs) Or just like remind myself that feelings are bad and don't feel them. And I'll just put them in a jar and pretend they don't exist. (laughs) (laughs) So healthy. (laughs) The healthiest, right? (laughs) I'm yeah, so conflicted. This really surprised me when he banished her at the end. I was shocked. Also, the marriage was shocking. But I there are no (laughs) words. I don't even know what to feel. I was like excited during the marriage thing. I was surprised and I mean, we read a lot of YA, so big surprises like this don't happen very often. And I was like, what the fuck are you doing, Cardin? Like, why are you betraying Jude? Like, I can't believe you guys are getting married. I was happy like 20 pages ago, and now you're fucking it all up. (sighs) That's how I felt. Very effective storytelling because it made us feel so many things. Yeah. Yeah, Holly Black, what are you doing to me? I don't appreciate (laughs) this. I don't want these feelings anymore. Take them back. (laughs) What is the return policy on feelings? (laughs) 
We interrupt these deep cuts to bring you Show Us Your Fix. What character do you think deserves their own storyline? Let us know by finding us on Twitter or Instagram at JKMagicPod. It's been a while since a Show Us Your Fix. Yeah. No one's had any fic-worthy relationships in a while. Or it already exists, I guess. Yeah, like the one I'm about to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not a huge fan of Jude. I'm more of a fan after the second book than I was in the first. But I absolutely love the relationship between Jude and Cardin. And I need to see more between them without fade outs, interruptions, or whatever. And I hope we get to see more interaction between the two of them and Queen of Nothing. I feel like we're still going to keep getting fade outs. I think that's kind of the vibe of the book. I think you're right. Yeah. But just so you know, there is a lot of good Jordan fic out there. Quote unquote Jordan. For example, Throne Sex. Okay, back to the deep cuts, because just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race, class, and gender. This is our segment about power and bodies and how they relate. Let's start with race. Let's. So the rules for humans and fairy remind me of the unspoken rules of walking through the white world as a POC. Of course, Vivi forgets to tell Heather the rules because Vivi is coded as white or white passing and the rules are in place to keep Heather safe, which isn't something that Vivi needs to think about. Holly Black is white and I thought this was written really well and I'm going to maybe she has sensitivity readers, but either way, reading this, I was like, yeah, this is how this goes when you don't have anyone to tell you the rules. I really thought that was well written. Is this something you've experienced personally? Somewhat. I grew up with um, white mom, black dad, but because my dad's not been in the picture since I was like 13, you kind of lose out on some of those black cultural things, but also like the person to tell you the rules of walking through the world as a person of color. My mom doesn't know them, obviously. So yeah, I thought that was well written and I liked it a lot. It's a really good point that I honestly didn't think about (laughs) because I'm white probably. (laughs) haven't had to think about it. like getting followed in a store they're just things that like white people don't have to think about ever and the fact that like the talk quote unquote for white families is like sex right but for black communities it's interacting with police right yeah and ha- and like vivi doesn't know to even give the talk because her people are the dangerous people right i don't know i thought it was really well written and like taken like within the confines of like without being explicitly explicitly racialized and I don't think that's something we see that often although I do think Heather is described as having darker skin oh is she yeah she has pink hair and I think darker skin I think I'm remembering that from Cruel Prince so maybe she's like both racialized and racialized yeah in in the fictional way and in the well I mean race is kind of a fiction it both is and isn't in our world well and we see a kind of like Jude's last name is Duarte so yeah we don't know about that no which is kind of also an interesting way for Holly Black to do that yeah I also thought this is a really good point because Vivi's ignorance extends to the fact that she thinks that her fairiness Mm -hmm. aka like read whiteness the Heather's proximity to it is going to keep her safe right and that's not true no that's not how that works at all no (laughs) And we see it also like Jude is getting upset that Vivi wouldn't have this talk with Heather because she's um, kind of been like protected from it for a while, which 
um, on page 212, Jude says, Taryn and I hid from Vivi the worst of what it was to be human and fairy. I think Vivi believed that because her sisters were fine, Heather would be too. But we were never fine. And this goes along with the humans being coded as POC and the Fae as white people. Vivi is a white person and able to ignore things that are happening to Jude and Taryn, who are POCs, because it doesn't affect Vivi. Meanwhile, Jude and Taryn suffer microaggressions on a daily basis, and Vivi has no knowledge of that. Like, I'm guessing even when she sees it in real life, thinks like, oh, it's not that bad. It's because they're they're humans and they have to get, learn to live in this world. Or Vivi can is almost like an apologist for how fairy works. Right. And they're like, oh, yeah, they suck. Yeah. So I think Vivi probably does know what happens to Taryn and Jude, thinking more about like the bullying that was happening in book one. Right. So I think Vivi probably knows about it, but the fact that she's like, oh, yeah, that sucks, but then like doesn't do anything with her privilege to make it easier or really try and listen to that experience right? of, um, you know, being in this power hierarchy and having a less privileged position. It just goes to show that proximity to people of a different race or with like less privilege doesn't necessarily mean, you know, anything about that experience. And it actually takes, you have to be active about seeking out opportunities to learn and listen about that. This actually struck me as particularly relevant because of the bullshit that was happening in the congressional hearing with right. Cohen on the 28th of February uh, about Mark Meadows brought out the a black woman was like, Trump isn't racist because he has this black friend. And then there was like a whole debacle and Rashida Tlaib was like, no, using a black woman as a prop right. is racist. And yeah. then the, like the entire thing got derailed because of this. Right. And then the white like white tears, basically. Yeah. Um, so not only did he use that as a reason for why Trump wasn't racist, he re- used it for a reason why he wasn't racist. He's like, I have black nieces and nephews. Proximity to people of color doesn't mean, doesn't like absolve you of racism. Right. Well, not only that. And then there was that video of him saying yes. that Obama should go back to Kenya or, or wherever he's from. It's like Hawaii. Like, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> like, yep. uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Very relevant right now. Very do better white people <laughs> for real <laughs> let's move on to gender so jude is the right hand of the king in the eyes of the people of fairy who don't know that she's actually in charge and none of the bad feelings people have about that seem to stem from her being a woman it's more her being a human right now i do think that gets a little complicated with the whole maiden of rebels or whatever it was that scene where they're like dressing her up because jude has to pretend that she is glamoured right right but i kind of like that they were okay with a woman being in power even if it is still a monarchy (laughs) i think they're they're probably okay with it because they didn't think she has power but she's not in power right it's still a king Although there was the original queen monarch. Mab. Yeah. Yeah. The first monarch was a queen. So that's an interesting point. Well, and I guess Jude's sisters could have been the next person in charge. And no one seemed to have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. Although I do think that we can draw the, a connection between this dynamic, like Jude and the court and the council and their reactions to Jude's position and also to people taking umbrage at powerful men who are seen as like quote unquote too influenced by women. Mm -hmm. And the example that's coming to mind to me is Bill Clinton and Hillary, which are like, I don't stand them at all. Far from it. They're super (laughs) problematic, but there was definitely a backlash when Hillary was seen as being instrumental and having power behind the scenes. Right. 
So maybe there's a little bit of that dynamic too. Right. Yeah, it's kind of hard to, I think maybe this kind of thing, like the difference between Jude being a woman and Jude being a human are kind of hard to pull apart because the fairies have so so much disgust at human and humanity. It's intersectional. <laughs> <laughs> Although we do see lots of women having power in this book. We do. Orla, Nicasia. Right. Cardin's going after them, though, so rightfully so, I'd say. <laughs> we also get to see Jude beat Balekin in a fight. Not only is she human, she's a human woman. And I was like, yeah, cool knife fights. <laughs> yeah. I know. Stab him, kill him, like, just be done with it. And she feels no remorse, which is one of my favorite things. Jude's kind of a badass. And I kind of forget it sometimes because she's like going through all this emotional upheaval because there's just a lot of responsibility like on her shoulders. But she's like really cool. I think it is pretty easy to forget that she was training to be a knight in the first book. And so she really prides herself on her fighting skills. Yeah. And I totally forgot 100% about that altogether. Which is like, what does that say about, I guess we're kind of programmed to not view that as an integral or central part of a character who's coded as feminine. Yeah, because we actually have talked a lot about her becoming the queen, which is like her femininity is associated with her marriage to some dude. Yeah, exactly. Like, that doesn't really like matter, <laughs> you know? No, she has a lot of power and right. is exercising that beforehand. Yeah. Hmm. Gotta check ourselves. I know. Class feelings. I have a lot of class feelings. I had no class feelings, so I'm excited to hear what you have to say. <laughs> First, I think it's absurd that the Court of Termites can't fight back against the Undersea because Roybin swore an oath of fealty to the High King. Is that what they call him? Yes. Um, A.K.A. Cardin. This is just an example of court intrigues, so high-class aristocratic court intrigues um, and sneaky politicking happening at the expense of people's, or in this case, fairies' lives. Right. Yeah, it was kind of weird. And I'm guessing they can't fight back against their oaths because Cardin has the power of like the whole army and will kill them I don't understand if it's like a magical can't go against the oath like why like how when Jude commands Cardin to do something he can't go around it unless he finds like a sneaky workaround or if it's a fear of retaliation won't go against the order yeah that's what I didn't understand as well maybe we'll get more on that in the next book (laughs) Just more questions. I don't know. I feel like the main thing in the next book is going to be Carter and Versmatic. Oh, and then I think so, for sure. Jude somehow comes into it. I don't know. How? I hope she doesn't team up with Maddox because I do not like him. Mm-mm. Well, I think she's going to use whoever she needs to use in order to do whatever she needs to do. And I'm just not really sure what her end game is. I don't know if she knows. Well, I guess it's hard because she feels so out of place in fairy. I mean, not in fairy, in the human world. Like she, It doesn't make sense for her to live there. So she wants to go home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Do what you gotta do, Jude, by any means necessary. Speaking of the human world, I think it's like good for Vivi for just tricking people and glamoring them with leaves. He's like, these are actual. This is actually money. Leaves are as real as any other sort of money. You just that's we just it's just a construct. Exactly, we made it up. Uh huh. So- it's nothing. Exactly. It has value because we think it has value. Right. Like Bitcoin. I don't understand how that works, but if I pretend it's like money. My partner, tried, my partner tried to explain it to me and it's like, I can't. Me too. I didn't. I was like, I don't know what that. I don't get it. 
So since Jude made the can't trick humans into perpetual enslavement rule, Balkin's household, when he actually comes back from the undersea and from the Tower of Forgetting, his household hollow hall is a shadow of what it was before. It used to be the center of a bunch of lavish parties. And this really reminded me how dependent higher classes are on lower ones, because the people of the lower class are the ones who perform all the labor that give the higher class its like the hallmarks of its status in the first place. And this reminded me of Hegel's master-slave dialectic. Bear with me, because goddammit, I'm going to put those critical theory graduate school seminars to work. So Hegel is a German philosopher who lived in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And this movement is actually more accurately translated as lord and bondsman, or lordship and bondage. But this dialectic, this master-slave dialectic, as it's more commonly known, is shows up in Hegel's 1807 book, The Phenomenology of Spirit, which I've read and it's super challenging and it made me feel like I didn't don't and will never know anything so be prepared for imposter syndrome if you ever try and tackle that one and what essentially this dialectic is about is it gets into how two beings in an unequal power relationship how they come to self-consciousness and it's because the other views the the lord views the bondsman as conscious and and the other way around so that's how self-consciousness arises and without getting into the details which are complicated and there's a lot of them what eventually happens is that the lord can't gain independence from things anymore because the bondsman does everything at the lord's behest and the lord's dependence on the bondsman is eventually is one of the things that mark will take marks will take up and develop into marx's theory this master slave dialectic in hegel lays the groundwork for some of you know central ideas in marxism so anyway that's that philosophy we'll put links to all these philosophical things in the show notes what intrigues me about class the most in holly black's folk of the air series is the fact that it's very hierarchical and yet there doesn't seem to be an actual currency in the sense of a monetary system right right yes because how would you ever know what money is? Because you can just glamour it. Right. Do glamours work on other fairies? Not really, I don't think. Maybe it depends. Yeah. But anyway, exchanges are brokered with deals. So it's actually not more equitable, right? Because we still have unequal power dynamics. And you can apparently trick people into deals. But it's a bartering system. Right. Which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. I didn't realize they didn't have money until you just said that. Like... Jude is making deals with that person when she gets the dress. So then our people are working for deals and that's how compensation comes from because Jude gives Grimson a tear, for example, for the earrings that she wants to give Taryn as a wedding present. And then I can't remember what Jude gives mother Marrow in exchange for the dress. I don't remember. Oh, I think what does mother Marrow do? She makes clothes. And I think part of her deal was something to do with, getting her to make things for the king or oh like, yeah yeah yeah, like an advertisement like an inn <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that is kind of strange and i'm just curious if anyone earns wages in the system or and i'm really not sure like i don't know the answer to that question because um we do learn that tatterfell is serving in maddox household for 100 years or something to pay off a debt does that make her an indentured servant yes yeah, I just thought this was curious. And when I really sat down to work on these episode notes and, and to really think about this, it just seems that the real currency, quote unquote, in Elfheim is 
power itself. Yeah, which I guess makes sense because you would have like these class differences and people who are living in like quote unquote poverty because if they don't have power, if they don't have something good enough to give to someone else, then how would they get things? Right. Yeah, that's really cool. Like an interesting thing to see a society with no money. I've never seen that in in another YA book. And I do wonder if Cardin's family had like nothing to offer the people anymore, would they no longer be in charge? Because it seems like what does he offer them now? Right. Safety question mark? Yeah. Entertainment? Obviously entertainment. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Stability? I guess there's that whole thing with the blood crown. So maybe it has to go to someone in that family. Yeah confused (laughs) theme of the episode just lots of confusion (laughs) you want to talk about bodies for a minute yeah so jude has this power to command cardin and jude tricked cardin into an extended period of quote-unquote consent where he has to do whatever she says which is not how consent works No, if you can't say no, then that's not consent. Right. But the book deals with this in such a, like, interesting way in that, like, Cardin doesn't want to do these things. And then Cardin tricks Jude into giving him his freedom back. This book really, I think, deals with, like, this question of what counts as consent. Like, can you be tricked into consenting to things? And if you've been tricked into it, does it count as consent? I would say that's coercion. I would too, especially when power's in play. We can see this when the fairies could trick humans right. into enslavement for forever. Yeah, so I feel like this book is dealing a lot with consent and what that means and how to get it and moreover, like how not to do it, how consent does not work if you are co- coerced into it. And I think I kind of appreciate that especially thinking about specifically like the Me Too movement. Obviously, this is happening to Cardin, who is male. But I think this is a good time to like talk about how like if you are coerced into something that does not count as being a consenting relationship. Hearing more and more about like teaching people to recognize enthusiastic Mm -hmm. consent. Right, exactly. Yeah, Jamila Jamil from The Good Place. Love, love her. She's killing it. Let's link to that talk she gave in the show notes because it was really good yeah enthusiastic consent like if someone just seems like meh about something like that's not good enough i also want to talk about Cardin and the way he was treated as a child his like background story which we didn't get much of in the last book kind of like broke me a little bit it was just so so sad he had to drink cat milk like from literal cats which was (laughs) Also, like, a really weird thing to picture. Which, I, like, I shouldn't be laughing about, but it just makes me think of Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and I don't know. Oh, I haven't seen it. But also, I'm like, a baby is, like, the size of a cat, so I don't know how that works. How do fairy babies... Oh, maybe they're really small, like Tinkerbell. Aww. That's or... so sweet. Or, like, a baby panda. Yeah, or the cats are really big. <laughs> I don't know. But also, like, the interaction when he's, like, hurting another child to, like, make his mom happy... That was so sad. It's tragic. He was neglected. Oh, my God. Like, 
he is a victim of child abuse on so many levels, like emotionally abused, obviously physically abused by Balekin at at the least, and neglected by both his father, who was the king, and his mother. But, I mean, his, his dad should, like, take responsibility. It's your kid, too. It was just hard. I think it did show how relationships between parents and children can be totally different, at least in fairy and just in general, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can juxtapose this with, Oriana and Oak have a very different relationship. And that's not even his mom. That's his adopted mom. Right. I guess those are the two the two relationships to look at is Cardin and his parents and then Oak. I don't know how much Maddox has, like, what he does with those kids, but because Oak's still so small. It's important to note that Cardin knows and is very conscious of the fact that his upbringing and the ab- abuse he suffered is instrumental in the way that he approaches the world. He tricks people and like hurt them because for attention. I think a lot of people who are the victims of abuse probably realize that that affects how they walk through the world and the relationships they have and how they interact with people and how certain kind of situations might be like triggering for them. But I think it is something that you like come to as you get older. And, and Cardin definitely is like, I understand that this is why I do these things. But he doesn't seem to want to change any of that. Finally, it's time for Shipwrecked, a segment about asexuality, sexuality, sex, romance, and relationships. And sometimes we take liberties and do some shipping of our own. Jude makes room for the possibility that Taryn and Locke might decide to be in a polyamorous relationship, but emphasizes that it needs to be consenting on behalf of both parties. She tells lock if taryn's not into it do not do it i mean she threatens to kill him but i'm okay with that but it I, sucks i appreciated that this it's the one of the first times that i've seen polyamory mentioned in fiction in general i think it's even more powerful that it's showing up in ya for sure because i don't think i've seen this in ya ever but shown as a valid option if everyone's consenting to right. it. right yeah i appreciated that yeah, it, we definitely see that monogamy is probably the exception rather than the rule in fairy. Yeah, I wonder how Jude will deal with that with being in a relationship with Cardin now. I wonder if she has taken on some of those societally accepted things in fairy that maybe aren't normally in the human world. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that she strikes me as the kind of character that would be okay if someone else decided to do it but who she just like her obsession with power and like almost like a possessiveness that she has over Cardin and how much she hates that she instructed him to essentially seduce Nikasia for intelligence I I just don't see I see her being clinging to monogamy right I wonder how that will affect like Cardin's place as the king because it doesn't seem like that is the norm for the king or any monarch to do that in this world oh also we saw Cardin in the middle of an orgy oh yeah i forgot about that and that was like a normal thing yeah i kind of appreciate how it's normalizing non not just like hetero monogamous sex so pretty i would say fairy is like a very sex positive society which we don't often get in our books or it's like sex prevalent i don't know if it's sex positive (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, without showing any of the sex. <laughs> but yeah. I think we need to talk about Jude and Cardin. Okay. And actually try to figure out what this relationship is about. I was kind of asking myself, and now I'm asking you, 
how does this ship both conform to the enemies and lovers trope and then turn it on its head at the same time? Well, it's difficult because obviously they started out as enemies and like they hook up, they get together. Well, now they're married. They are husband and wife now, <laughs> which seems weird. Um, but then it seems like too sanctioned. Yeah. But then Cardin goes and like, is like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like you can't come back. I don't often see this enemies to lovers come back around and go back to enemies. What do you think? I <laughs> am confused. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, I just wish I knew the reasons underpinning Jude's attraction to Cardin that, and I wish it were addressed more in the novels. And I, I think it's not because I don't think she knows and we get everything from Jude's perspective. Right. So it makes sense that it's not addressed, but it's just like something I'm really wanting to know more about. Um, is he just like hot AF? I mean, yes. yes. <laughs> um, is there some sort of like domination kink? But at the same time, Cardin was humiliating her. Right. And like, is that a kink? Like they're totally valid and reasonable, right? Yeah. As long as everyone's consenting to those sorts of um, like that sort of play right or scenes you know right but um does she just have like a thing for bad boys slash men and well maybe she's attracted to other genders i don't know we right. don't see that in the book no but does she just by which i mean like does she just get off on the riskiness of Cardin in general you know i've never thought about her motivation for liking him because there should be reasons you like someone not just like I don't know. I guess you could just be like sexually attracted to them and that's good enough. But it seems like she's attracted in more than just a sexual way. Like there's an underlying attraction that manifests as sexual. Right. And she's also at the same time as being sexually attracted to him. She's like disgusted at her attraction to him. Or she's disgusted or upset by the fact that he might find her disgusting because she's a human right. and he's a fairy. Yeah. So it's like this weird tangled mess of like power play. Because I do think she does, there's some sort of like the kink that it's about her having power over him. Right. And she's technically supposed to be this powerless human and he's supposed to be like a super powerful fae. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure. It's just so fascinating to me. It's one of the most interesting ships I think I've ever read. Well, why do you like Cardin? That's a good question. <laughs> why do you, you I like know. it more than me? I know. I, I mean, I think he's supposed to be like very physically attractive. Yeah. Why do we like I Cardin? Know. Like, that is the question. Like, Jude likes him, and I don't know why, but, like, why do I? Why do we? Shit. Yeah. And I do think we are encouraged to identify with Jude because we get everything from her perspective. Right. So I think that's a really important question to ask. Like, yeah. why Jude likes him might be connected to why the reader is supposed to like him. Right. Why does Holly Black want us to like him? What is she doing? So she to can us? manipulate us into I the know. big reveal at the end. <laughs> Whatever's going on. Yeah, because I don't know why I like Cardin. I know to a certain extent, I obviously feel very bad for him. He's had like this shitty upbringing and has seemed to come out of the other side of that relatively okay. And Jude has seen that. Like right. she's also been witness to that just as the reader has, which is, I mean, that's why we have that information is because Jude witnessed him being, you know, abused by Balekin and then also that scene in the snow globe or whatever it was. Oh, yeah. With his mom. Yeah. So I think there's a certain amount of like feelings to be had for people who have gone through something and come out of the other side seeming to have grown in some aspect. I think me personally is attracted to someone who can like grow as a person but I also feel a little tricked by Cardin in that sense that I'm not actually sure that he has. 
but I think it's it's so fascinating how Holly Black is manipulating feelings in general, and especially like a reader's feelings, right? Slash Jude's feelings, yeah. Because there's got it. There's some sort of like an attraction there that I can't pin down why. It's not just because he's hot. Yeah. Like I can tell. I can say well, like Resand is hot. And why he's attractive. Like, I know why. He's, you know, witty. He's kind of a dick. Super powerful. That sort of, like, I can pin down. Oh, yeah, definitely tattoos. (laughs) Wings. Wingspans. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, like, I get that. Yeah. But I don't really know why Cardin is attractive. That's such a good question, Jesse. Yeah, I don't know why either. I mean, he's funny. He's, like, funny in a mean way. He's, like, a bad boy. Yeah. But, like, I don't normally think bullies are, like, acceptable in any way. Normally, I think that sort of abuse of power yeah. isn't a attractive. hallmark of an attractive person. No. But I do often find myself attracted to characters who, for some reason, are on the outskirts of society. Like, they're not accepted. They're seen as, like, weird. Or misunderstood. Yeah, different. Yeah, when I think about, like, the music I listen to and my my teenage years all the card and stuff makes sense but i i'm not sure (laughs) that's healthy (laughs) we do get that very much like maybe it's the misunderstood vibe and how no one else knows this about Cardin, and where the we slash jude are the only people who do yeah and there's something about like feeling connected to a person that you have secrets with and whose secrets you're not willing to tell other people i don't know it's also just fascinating to me that this that it started as obsession yeah like when you think about the note of writing jude jude Jude, you know 40 times in the cruel prince but also jude was similarly obsessed with Cardin. yes but why 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 (laughs) we don't know maybe they're just both hot af and they're like let's be together let's bone just kidding fade out Oh, yeah. Sexy times. No sexy. I mean, there are, but a fade out. And I didn't appreciate it. It was like, maybe my biggest critique of this book is like, what? Why? 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 You can find those fix. They're out there. I know, but it they're never exactly the same as the writing style of the author. And that pulls me out of the story. And I'm just like, hey, author, just write this. <laughs> Holly Black, just do it. Why do you think they don't? Why do you think there are so many fade outs? Mm. I think Holly Black is writing definitely YA fiction. Like straight up YA. Not, yeah. Not, not Sarah J. Mass YA adjacent. I think she's writing strictly YA. And I, I think we're still at a point where like actual sex happening in the book for YA is probably still not accepted. I don't know why. Is that like kind of a hard line, do you think, that makes something not YA anymore? Well, I think Sarah J. Mass has ruined that, <laughs> which I think is good because, I mean, teenagers are watching porn. They're, they're having hot. sex. Yeah. So, like, I don't know why sex is held up as, like, this sacred thing. I mean, it's fine if it is for people. I don't know. To me, I'm just like, it's it's just sex. Like, I don't know. It's both important and, like, banal. Yeah. And I understand the reasons it's important, but I also think... Like, what's the big deal? Yeah, there's just, like, how do you normalize without necessarily, like, promoting? Right. Yeah. Or promoting, like, healthy relationship? Because, like, this is not a healthy relationship. And part of me thinks that authors are not writing sex scenes in YA books because they don't, maybe not 
them personally, but publishers don't think it's appropriate for teenagers. And if you want a teenager to be able to go into a bookstore and pick up any book on in the YA section, so that's ranging ages 13 to 18, then you keep the sex out of it. But I don't appreciate it. <laughs> so I don't know. What do you think? I think your point bringing the larger publishing industry into it is important. I do think that that's probably instrumental behind the scenes and we don't really know why or how. And didn't you say that like 80% of publishing is white women, like older white women? Yes. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's like a, you know, behind the scenes conservative force. Not like I'm not talking in the sense of political parties. I'm talking in like, like values essentially. Yeah. Like, what do we want to teach children? What do we want to teach young adults? We want them to teach them to be independent and all this stuff. But But pretend sex doesn't exist. And that it's only hetero, basically. Yes. Yeah. Because when you think about it, and th- and this was something that I find interesting, Sarah J. Mass's book is published by Bloomsbury Children's. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm guessing, I think Bloomsbury maybe doesn't have a division separated children and young adult like some other publishers do. But it's definitely not a children's book. So, I don't know. Maybe she's, like, shaking it up a little bit, and that'll be helpful in the future. But I think I think teens do need positive depictions of sex. Yeah, queer sex also, which was not I mean, we get like insinuations of polyamory, but we don't get like a front lines look of how that looks. Right. Yeah. I think the fade out also has like a a narrative effect in that it makes the reader want to keep going, maybe on the hopes that there won't be a fade out next time. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either, but I'm I'm annoyed by them generally in general (laughs) readers know our take like I see their use but I have a preference well and the hard part for me is that this book is kind of violent I mean Judas killing people and it's pretty twisted in a lot of different ways and I think we saw torture obviously and child abuse in the first book with Cardin so I don't know why depictions of violence are seen as better than a depiction of sex like why that's okay. Yeah, we totally prioritize violence over pleasure right. on a representational level, yeah. societally, generally. Mm-hmm. And I don't appreciate it. That's, I think, an important point to bring up more contemporary black feminism is talking about that, about you know representing, seeing black bodies not just as sites of oppression and then like trauma and healing, but also as sites where pleasure is possible. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important in... Um, books and medians and those kind of things like every black story shouldn't it be about civil rights and slavery and everything that's awful about being black because of racism like it's important to show positive good feeling movies and books and tv shows about black people right there are other parts of that experience that aren't just the experience of violence and oppression yeah and here i will say like read jasmine guillory her books are beautiful and black and no violence. <laughs> I've brought that up because I'm, for my, I'm taking a woman of color feminisms seminar and we're reading Jennifer Nash's The Black Body and Ecstasy, mm-hmm. where she like does this other alternate reading of racialized porn in the 70s and 80s. So that's why that's on my mind. I just feel like YA is such an effective venue. It has so much potential to show how pleasure and pain is tangled and simultaneous and messy. When I think why it often pushes the boundaries of what is like acceptable to show and tell young people. And I think by not showing and telling them about healthy sexual relationships, 
both hetero and queer is not a good thing. You know, I think it's I think it's where YA is failing. Sorry for my rant. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. I'm sorry, not sorry. Now we're going to talk about writing style, narration, characterization, plot structure, and basically whatever else comes to mind in a segment called Kill Your Darlings. I really enjoy the poems that Holly Black includes at the beginning of the novels. They, they seem to be more from like English and Irish poets. Maybe they're American. And the poems about fairies included at the beginning really do set the stage for the mysterious and somewhat sinister tone of the series. And I think it is a nod to this long tradition of fairy lore, which we mentioned in the Cruel Prince episode. Right. There's so many interesting poems about, I forget who wrote this one, about like the goblin fruit and not eating the goblin fruit. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's a super famous one. I'm just I know I can't think of it. I think I wrote a paper on it. And I, <laughs> I, I just think that that's a really, there's a lot of Easter eggs there for the people who are more familiar with that. Right. That's kind of, that's kind of fun as a reader. Yeah. I don't think I skim the poems a little bit. <gasps> I know this is going to sound terrible. I'm not a huge poetry person. It's just not my fave. So it's literally sorry. like 20 lines of poetry. I know I read it, but I don't remember it. Mm. I don't know why. It's just kind of, they're they're just so, the poems convey this tone that the book then emulates. And right. it's about like the strangeness and the mysteriousness and the inability to really like capture the essence of what fairies are and how like their attraction for humans. Right. And how they're both like dangerous and exhilarating. And that's an interesting addition to the beginning of the book. <laughs> I am not surprised that often when reading YA books. You can see, we see a lot of these twists coming. Yeah. But I did not see Jude and Cardin getting married coming. My jaw like literally dropped open. And I know I talked to you about it before you finished asking you what you thought was going to happen. You said you thought they were going to get married. And I was like, I didn't see that coming at all. I was just in a state of shock. I was more shocked by the banishment than I was about the marriage. I figured that they were going to do something like the. I don't know, because marriage is just such a, I don't know, typical right. power play move in like feudal court systems. That, that didn't really surprise me. I think I should have thought of it because I knew that the next book was called Queen of Nothing. And how is Judah Queen if she's not married to Cardin? But I was just shocked. I was so surprised. And I don't know why. Good job, Holly Black. <laughs> Tricked me. <laughs> I thought the pacing was good in this novel as well. It was like a real page turner for me. I read it in like three days. And normally I'm like trying to hurry up and finish the book before we record. <laughs> or at least I have been recently. So I was just like, oh my gosh, this is so good. I need to know what happens next. It makes me want to read more Holly Black books, honestly. Me too, but only fairy ones. I think she only writes fairy stories. Recommend if you like enemies to lovers stories which are my fave they are i can attest they are absolutely jesse's favorite <laughs> she has a style yeah recommend if you like those and we do we love that so we recommend it yeah before we end it's time for real talk did reading this book make your perspective change in any way or did it make you interrogate a concept slash system slash trend you hadn't before 
This book is all about power. And I just kept coming back to it. It's just such a fascinating display of all the different ways that power is an end in itself. So there's like we mentioned before, there's no money, but which is where my anti-capitalist mind tends to go, right? Because that's our, I mean, late capitalism is our my lived reality and right. our lived reality. So that's where you know my mind tends to go is thinking about class specifically in capitalist terms. And that's not true in this book. Um, but Maddox, Jude, Orla, Balkin, basically everyone in the series is in like power is instrumental in all their motivations and the things that they do. What about you? What this make you think about? So I was really like mm, focused on Cardin's relationship with his mother. I don't think often think of the pressure bad parents might put on their kids to do bad things. But we do see this with Cardin in that his mother gave him positive attention when he did naughty things. And then when he was getting no attention and did bad things that got him attention from Balkin and from his father. Right. Right. So what we give our attention to is so precious. And sometimes the way we give things, our attention encourages bad behavior. And I kind of forget about that. I think in, it, it just like really struck a chord with me with this relationship between Cardin and his mother and really Cardin with all of his authority figures, how um, I think we often see kids doing things that are bad and tell them that they're bad kids instead of saying, you know, this thing you did was bad. You're not a bad person necessarily because you do bad things. Which is the difference between guilt and shame. Right. right. Guilt mm-hmm. is I did a bad thing and shame is I am a bad. Right. I mean, I am bad. Right. And I think Cardin is probably affected by both guilt and shame Mm. but i think he thinks he's a bad person because of the bad things he does and it's i don't know it's really sad and it's an exploration of how the values of whoever the authority figure is can be instilled in the non-authority figure what would you even call that yeah (laughs) like impressionable figure right yeah in in really subtle ways Mm -hmm. and I heard somewhere, I don't know if this is actually true, but that like the reason why a lot of kids say no so early is because they hear it a lot. Oh, that's so interesting. Oh. And I don't know, just kind of realizing how impressionable, specifically if we're talking about parenting, children are so smart and can pick up on so much, so many cues. Right. Well, I think we see this sometimes like in parent shaming, like uh, in an episode of Modern Family, one of the, Claire was making fun of, um, Mitch and Cam for not telling Lily no they were not doing that but something I read even when I was like learning about how to take care of my cat was like don't use no in their name together because then they associate their name with negative things and so I think sometimes parent shaming comes into that where like obviously Mitch and Cam were trying to have positive interactions with their child and someone else is shaming them out of that I think sometimes we don't remember not we but parents don't remember like how much of an effect and how much influence they'll have on their children and their children's future selves um, because they're so concerned with the present and what they're doing and how their children are affecting them in that moment as opposed to I'm raising this person to be a person forever, not just in this moment. I don't have kids and I don't want them. So really this has no bearing on me whatsoever (laughs) but I don't know it just made me think of that and how those interactions I guess with your parents from a young age really affect who you'll become as a person later totally being in therapy really makes you think about that
Thanks for listening to JK It's Magic. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of Descendant of the Crane by Joan Hay. And watch out for the occasional minisode about a range of fantasy-adjacent topics, like maybe five feet apart. Yes. Maybe we'll do an episode about it. Let's. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at JKMagicPod. Post or tweet about the show using the hashtag CriticallyReading. If you have an idea for a book that we should add to our enormous TBR list, please email us at jkmagicpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your suggestions. Know a friend who would enjoy the podcast? Please spread the word. You can subscribe to JK It's Magic on the podcast app of your choice. And if you're feeling benevolent, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review the show. Please. JK It's Magic is recorded on land traditionally belonging to Cheyenne, Ute, and Arapaho Native people. Until next time, stay magical. The Wicked King picks up a few months after the Cruel Prince and Cardin and Ju... Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Okay. (sighs) Okay. (laughs) It's going to be my whole day.